Joel chapter 23 is where we'll be at this morning. Here at Midtown Baptist, we believe that Scripture alone is the foundation for the life of the church, which is why each and every Lord's Day, we make it our aim to feed God's people with God's Word. Some of you may know that this month marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, that great work of God where the gospel of grace was recovered and reclaimed from the grip of Rome's tyranny. As Baptists, and we are Baptists distinctly, as Baptists whose theology stretches into that stream of Reformation theology, how should we commemorate that great work of God known as the Reformation? What should we do to celebrate the work that God did? Well, quite simply, by preaching the Bible. You see, if the Reformers were able to be present with us this morning, that's what they would tell us to do. Preach the Bible. Herald the things of God. Lift up the treasures of the Scriptures so that Christ's church is continually reformed by God's holy Word. The Reformation wasn't a work of magnificent men, friends. It was the work of God's Word. So we would commemorate that by doing what we do every Sunday. Opening the Bible and preaching from God's Word. So may we not take it for granted that here we are gathered together on yet another Sunday with copies of God's Word in our own language, enjoying the blessed freedom of worshiping Christ together according to the Scriptures. No one is bending our conscience to do contrary to the Bible. No one is lording over us an authority outside the Bible. These are precious gifts. And I pray we receive them as such this morning. Our focus today is 1 Samuel 23. So I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read here from 1 Samuel 23. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away the livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Calah, he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that 
David had escaped from Kayla, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh? On the hills of Hakila, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land." So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Father, what a privilege it is to hear You speak in the inspired text of the Scriptures. We marvel at the fact that You, the sovereign God of the universe, would reveal Yourself to us. Not in a way that terrifies us, not in a way that crushes us, Father, but in a way that saves us and builds us up and keeps us safely in Your hand. Give us grace, God, to hear Your Word rightly today. Pray that You would keep me from error. Pray that You would give these Your people discernment that their faith might be strengthened, that their hearts might be encouraged, and that Your name might be magnified in our midst until the day the Lord Jesus returns. We pray in His name. Amen. Do you remember that simple little song, He's got the whole world in His hands? If you grew up going to church, you probably sang that song more than a few times. Some of you might be humming that song in your head right now. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I'm not very good at singing. It's such a simple little song. It just repeats that one line four times in a row. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's simple enough for toddlers to sing. 
And yet, if you think about it, the song expresses a profound truth. The truth of God's absolute sovereignty. Is this not what it means to say that God has the world in His hands? That He controls, governs, and upholds the entire universe? From the massive red giant stars fixed in the heavens to the minuscule molecules coursing through our veins? Is this not what it means? Yes. That is what the song means. Behind those simple lyrics we find a profound and biblical truth. The world is in God's hands. So that all of life runs according to God's will. As we come to 1 Samuel 23, we find that the theology of that simple song is the theme of our passage. This chapter is about God's sovereign hand. Maybe you noticed it when we read earlier, but the word hand is repeated throughout the chapter eight times in total. The point is not to describe the physical fingers and thumbs of the characters involved. The word hand is a metaphor for a person's power, for a person's ability to do what he wills. And here's where the theme comes into focus. Most often, that hand metaphor is used in connection with Saul. Six times, the text describes Saul's hand pursuing David. But each time, Saul's hand fails to grasp what he wants. Why? Why does Saul's hand come up empty time after time after time? Because quite simply, the Lord's hand is greater than Saul's. The theologians of old used to call God's hand His unseen providence. The invisible hand of God. That's the theme of this chapter. Let's not gloss over this, brothers and sisters. I know we've seen this truth in some form or another play out over the last several chapters. But let's not misinterpret the repetition. It's not just repetitive. This is purposeful. God keeps proclaiming to us the truth of His sovereign providence because He knows so often we lose sight of it. We so often misunderstand it and misuse it. Just think about your own heart. How easy is it to wander and believe that we've been left to ourselves in this life? How easy is it to live like a functional atheist? How quickly do we lose sight of God's promises? Promises that He sovereignly guarantees. How quickly do we lose sight of those and then fix our eyes on all the hardships that surround us as though they were sovereign? You see, we need this, reputi this repetition much more than we care to admit. We need to see Sunday after Sunday the omnipotent, sovereign, gracious, and good God who reigns over the entire universe and who sustains the lives of His servants so that not a hair of our heads falls to perish without His will. That's what we need every Sunday. That's what we need every day. This chapter is about God's sovereign hand. So with that theme in mind, consider with me Three scenes here in 1 Samuel 23 that show us three ways God's hand worked in David's life. Three scenes, three ways the Lord's hand worked in David's life. It begins in verses 1 to 13, where we see the Lord's hand guides. The Lord's hand guides. Things are changing in Israel. 
Look at verse 1. The Philistines are back, and they're doing what they always do, harassing and oppressing God's people. That's not new. But notice who receives the report. Not Saul, but David. That is new. And we shouldn't overlook it. Remember, it was the king who was expected to protect the people. And yet here in verse 1, Saul is bypassed in favor of David. Things are changing in Israel. David may be on the run, but God's hand is at work. And the work he's doing is raising up a new king who will deliver his people. That's not the only thing that's different in the first scene. It's also clear that David will be a different kind of king compared to Saul. If you remember anything about Saul's kingship, then you know it's a tragic story of sin and rebellion. God guided Saul by giving him his clear word. But how did Saul respond? He rejected God's guidance. He disobeyed God's word. And as a result, Saul has been left on his own. That's the worst thing God can do to a person, is leave them to themselves. That's what Saul has. He has no access to the Lord's wisdom. Saul is adrift. He is a man without anchor. He spurned God's guidance in order to go his own way. And that's what makes the remainder of this scene so significant. David is not on his own. David is not adrift. The Lord is sovereignly guiding him. And the text stresses this in a number of ways. Notice them with me. First off, David seeks the Lord's guidance. What's the first thing David does when he hears about the Philistines attacking? Verse 2, he inquires of the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. It's such a change from Saul, isn't it? David doesn't do anything rash. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. No, David recognizes what he needs most in this moment is to know the Lord's will. To seek God's wisdom. And amazingly, The Sovereign Lord answers not once, but twice. The end of verse 2 is clear. The Lord tells David to go. David's men aren't convinced. They're afraid. They've barely escaped Saul. Why would they want to take on the Philistines? So David inquires of the Lord a second time. And with merciful patience, the Lord answers once more. And this time with resounding confirmation. Notice the end of verse 4. The Lord says, Arise, Go down to Calah, for I, it's emphatic here, I will give the Philistines into your hand. Do you hear the sovereignty of God, friends? David and his his men are not fighting on their own. God fights for them. And He will deliver the Philistines into David's hand. And indeed, that's what happens. Look at verse 5. David and his men head down to the battle and it's, it's, it's presented as almost an afterthought because it's so clear that God wins. It's a stirring display of God's sovereign power. But how did it begin? With David seeking the Lord's guidance. Next, we get clarity on what's already been implied. David has access to the Lord's guidance. He seeks the Lord's guidance because he has access to the Lord's guidance. Verse 6 is really the hinge of the entire scene. When David inquires of the Lord in verse 2, we're left asking ourselves, how did he do this? How did he ask God these questions? Well, verse 6 is the answer. Look there with me. Who is with David? Abiathar, the priest. And what does Abiathar have with him? The high priestly ephod. 
Now, there's a lot of mystery surrounding the ephod, but a, a few things are clear. The ephod was a, was a linen shroud that was attached to the high priest's breastplate. You remember the breastplate that had the, the jewels on it that had the names of the 12 tribes? And on that breastplate, there was a pocket, and in the pocket was kept the Urim and the Thummim, those, those stones that, that Israel would use to get answers from God. Should we do this or should we do that? And the stones would give the answer. We're not really clear how it all worked, but the point is clear enough. These are the divinely appointed means of knowing God's will. And who has them? David. David has them. He has access to God's guidance. So look at what, look at what God has done. Do you remember how Abiathar came to be with David? Because Saul killed all the other priests at Nob. So God took the wickedness of Saul and He used it as a means of grace in David's life to give him access to the will of God. David has what Saul does not. He has access. There's one more level. Verse 7 and following, David is spared by God's guidance. He seeks God's guidance. He has access to God's guidance. Now he's spared by it. For all of Saul's flaws, he appears to have a very effective intelligence network. Look at verse 7. He receives word that David is in Calah, which prompts Saul to march against the city. And by all appearances, David is cornered. I don't know a lot about military strategy, but one thing I do know is that you never put yourself in a place where you've got no way out. David's in a walled city. He's done. He's toast. It's over. But David has something that Saul doesn't understand. Access to the Lord's guidance. And in verses 10 to 12, David puts that access to work. Don't miss the mercy here, friends. Don't miss the mercy here. David asks the Lord specific questions and the Lord gives specific answers through the ephod. David has what Saul lacks. David has the Lord's guidance. And and in this incredible display of mercy, God uses that guidance to spare David's life. He seeks God's guidance. He has access. He's spared by the Lord. Now, if you step back from this first scene, it's easy to think, well, this is all very interesting. But what does this have to do with us? How does this moment from David's life have have anything to do with us? And, And we should acknowledge that there is a lot about David's life that is unique. None of us have been set apart to be king over God's people. Nobody has a high priestly ephod, and if they do, it's probably really freaky and not real. All of that's unique, and that doesn't apply directly to us. But let's not make the mistake of stopping at the uniqueness. There is a connection to be made if we have the eyes to see it. Think about it with me for just a moment. In simple terms, just in in simple terms, what happens in the first 13 verses? David has access to God's guidance and his access is mediated through a priest. In the simplest terms, that's what's going on. Divine access mediated through a priest. Brothers and sisters, does that not bring to your mind the wonderful teaching of the book of Hebrews? That believers have a great high priest over the house of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens and is seated now at God's right hand where He ever lives to make intercession for His people? You see, that's the beauty of this moment from David's life. It points ahead to the great gospel gifts Christ provides to His church. 
The Lord Jesus is both King and Priest. He's conquered the enemies of sin and death. And now through His priestly ministry, we have the unspeakable privilege of going into God's presence. And there in God's presence, in that heavenly, holy place, with boldness and confidence, we can seek the face of the Lord in prayer. We can ask for divine guidance. Friends, that's better than having any fod. That's the kind of access not even David enjoyed. Brothers and sisters, is this how you think of prayer? Is is this how you think of prayer? As Christ's gift to you of access to God. Is this how you think of God's Word? As the Spirit's ongoing means of guiding you to know and trust the mind of God. I'll confess that I too often take these gifts for granted. Maybe you're like me at this point. I reduce prayer to a religious duty so that at the end of the day I find myself saying, did I do everything that I'm supposed to do so that I don't get in trouble? I reduce prayer to a religious duty and then I lose sight of what it is that I'm holding in my hands when I I pick up the Bible. That's why I'm so thankful for texts like this one. Because the uniqueness of David's life, the uniqueness of his circumstances, gives us a fresh perspective on these incredible gospel gifts that we've received. Access to God in prayer. Have you you stopped lately just to think about the fact that you have access to the God who made everything out of nothing? And He doesn't kill you when you come into His presence? Or that you have the mind of God, the complete, inerrant, inspired mind of God given to you in the Bible? Friends, these are unspeakable privileges. Don't you want to pray? Don't you want to read God's Word? These are unspeakable gifts. These are unfathomable gifts. And I pray we would see them afresh for what they are. The Lord's hand guides David. And from that, we're reminded of the way Christ has gifted and guided His church. That's the first way God works. In verses 14 to 18, we see the second way God's sovereign hand works. The Lord's hand strengthens. The Lord's hand strengthens. Verses 14 and 15 provide a good summary for David's life at this point. Saul is continually searching for David, trying to kill him, but Saul's hand always comes up empty. Notice the end of verse 14. But God did not give David into his hand. Friends, that's as clear a statement as you can get it. That's a summary for like the next four chapters, by the way. God did not give David into Saul's hand. Saul may sit on the throne of Israel, but the Lord God reigns over the universe. He preserves David's life. Now, what happens next is one of the kindest moments in the entire book, at least in my reading of it. Verse 14 tells us quite plainly that God is sustaining David, but beginning in verse 16, the Lord goes beyond sustaining David to supplying him with specific encouragement. Truly, friends, we should be blown away at the kindness of God that we're about to see in these verses. 
But to appreciate the kindness, we have to see its position in the flow of the chapter. Notice what surrounds verses 16 to 18. What surrounds those verses? Betrayal. Betrayal. In verses 1 to 13, David saved the residents of Cala, and how did they pay him back? By selling him out to Saul. And then in verses 19 to 29, the people of, of Ziph, the Ziphites, who were from David's own tribe, what do they do? They sell David out too. So you see, ungrateful people of Cala before and treacherous people of Ziph after. Everywhere David looks, everywhere David turns, it seems, he encounters enemies. He's hemmed in on all sides by people who want to do him harm. Who comes in the middle? Verses 16 to 18. Who comes in the middle? Jonathan. Jonathan comes. David's faithful friend, Jonathan, arrives to bring the beleaguered David some encouragement. You'll notice in the text, Jonathan arrives with little announcement and no explanation. How did he find David? How did he get away from Saul? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. And I think that's on purpose. Jonathan simply shows up in verse 16. And I take this to be a reminder of God's sovereign providence. David is hemmed in on all sides. Yet in the midst of the betrayal, the Lord's hand reaches in to provide some much needed encouragement. We can only guess how encouraging Jonathan's presence would have been to David's soul. The two men were bound together by covenant. But you'll notice the text doesn't emphasize Jonathan's presence. There's no description of any emotion upon their reunion. Instead, the text highlights Jonathan's words. What he says to David in this hour of need. And very simply, Jonathan points David to the promises of God. Look at verse 17. And listen to how Jonathan helps David fix his eyes on the Lord. Do not fear. For the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. And I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. You see, Jonathan understands there's only one place to find strength at this moment. There's only one place. The world seems to be crashing down on David. Enemies are lurking around every corner. And yet in the midst of that chaos, Jonathan comes and what does he do? He doesn't offer some platitude about how it'll all get better in the end. He doesn't coldly shrug off David's difficulty and tell him to buck up and act like a man. No, David, Jonathan comes to David and he takes God's promise and he puts it in front of David's face and he says, look at this. Look at this. Put your eyes on this, friend. Focus on this, friend. Don't let your eyes wander to all the hardship. Don't let your heart be threatened by my Father. Look at this. This never changes. My Father can't touch this. Look at this. Remember God's promise. Remember God is faithful. He is sovereign. He will do what He said. I know that. You know that. So let's walk by faith together. That's what Jonathan tells him. 
It was a simple message. But oh, how powerful it proved to be. Jonathan pointed David to the promises of God. In fact, look at the end of verse 16 where we see the fruit of Jonathan's ministry. It's such a wonderful picture. Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. I like how one old theologian, William Blakey, put it. Jonathan put David's hand, as it were, in God's hand. That's good. Jonathan put David's hand, as it were, into God's hand. When it seems like David's grip might fail, Jonathan takes his friend to the only thing that can help, the promises of their sovereign God. Brothers and sisters, did you know that this is a picture of the ministry we're called to have to one another? Jonathan does for David what believers are called to do in the life of the church. When the waves of hardship begin to crash down on the heads of our brothers and sisters, we don't pull back. We don't steal, steer clear in hopes of avoiding their trouble. No, we, we meet our brothers and sisters in their need like Jonathan met David in the wilderness. We meet them in their need and we strengthen their hand, of, in, their hand in God. We make their burdens our own so that the weight of perseverance is spread out across many believing hearts. How do we do this? How do we strengthen our fellow believers in God? The same way Jonathan strengthened David by pointing each other to the promises of God. You see, this is what should astound us about God's promises. They have a unique, God-appointed power to strengthen faith. They have a unique power to strengthen faith. I'm sure you've tried to build a fire before, and you've found yourself blowing air across the smoldering embers in hopes that some flames would start roaring again. Friends, that's how the promises of God work in a Christian's heart. They're like the fresh air that blows across the embers of faith and stokes it again until we trust once more in our sovereign God. Only the promises of God can do this. I remember one point from early in our church's life early in Midtown's life, it was a particularly hard season for our church. I think it was in the first or the second year. We were struggling to find a place to meet. We, we didn't have a building. We still don't have a building. We have a roof over our head. Praise the Lord. We were struggling to find a place to meet, and I was keenly aware of my own limitations to offer any kind of leadership that would be helpful. I mean, not to put it too strongly, but I felt lost. And in the fog of that discouragement, I, I sent an email back to the church that we came from in Louisville, and I was asking for their prayers. And one of the pastors responded to my email, and he said he would be praying. And then at the, email, at the end of the email, he said this, Remember, Jeff, Jesus loves His church more than you do, and it's His ministry, not yours, that will sustain the congregation. That's all he said. Now, did that message give us a building? No. But it did take my eyes off the uncertainty and put them back on God and His promises. Brothers and sisters, that's our ministry. 
That's why we read Ephesians 4, 1-16 earlier in the service. That's our ministry. And what a glorious ministry it is to be the means of God's grace. To be the extension of God's hand to strengthen and encourage fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's your calling. The Lord strengthened David and it came through Jonathan. And so I ask you, who might the Lord be calling you to strengthen? And how can you respond even today in faith? That's number two. The Lord's hand strengthens. That brings us to the final scene, verses 19 to 29, where we see the Lord's hand delivers. The Lord's hand delivers. As we mentioned just a moment ago, David's troubles get worse before they get better. He's hiding out in the wilderness of Ziph, which belonged to the tribe of Judah. That's David's tribe, so you would think this would be a safe place to hide. You can hide among your own people. It's not. The Ziphites betray David into Saul's hand. They surely know what Saul did to the city of Nob. So they don't want that to happen to their city. And they make the, they make the right calculation or the ruthless calculation, but it's understandable. Be better for David to die than for all of us. So let's sell him out. That's what they do, 19 to 24. They make an alliance with Saul. At first, the alliance appears like it will work. Notice verse 25. David hears Saul is on the move, so David sets out for this great rock in the wilderness of Maon. It's a mountain, really. Here's where some geography can help us. This particular mountain on the eastern side of it is wide open country that stretches all the way to the Dead Sea. If David tries to escape that way, then he'll be easily captured because he's out in the open. There's nowhere to hide. But Saul is coming on the western side of the mountain. And and the way the text is written, it seems like Saul has split his, his forces into two and they're encircling the mountain on the north and the south. So David can't go to the west, he can't go to the north, he can't go to the south. If he goes to the east, it's certain death. This is the end. Right? This this, this is the end. There's nowhere to go. David has made a valiant run, but at long last, Saul has gotten the upper hand. And as you come to verse 27, you're thinking that all that's left is to read of David's execution. But not so fast. Verse 27 breaks up the inevitable. Listen to how sudden it is. A messenger. Where does he come from? We don't know. A messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. (laughs) Don't miss this wonderful, worship-inspiring irony at this point in verse 27. How did the chapter begin? with David having to deliver Kayla from the Philistines. How does the chapter end? With David being delivered by the Philistines. Saul's seemingly inevitable victory is broken up in the most unlikely fashion. Now, of course, if you want to be very dull, you could just read this and conclude that David got lucky. But the Bible is anything but dull. Why did the Philistines make their raid on this day? Why this day and not the day before or the day after? Why? Because in His sovereign providence, God appointed this day, this moment even, as the moment of deliverance. 
You see, unlike Saul, the Lord's hand never comes up empty. The Lord's hand is never too short. It's never too late. He has everything at his disposal, including the God-hating Philistines, and he puts all of those resources to work for the good of those who trust him. Listen, friends, this, this scene is actually a really good barometer for our hearts. When you read of God using the Philistines to accomplish His will, do you find yourself drawn to debate or drawn to worship? Do you want an explanation or do you offer exaltation? It should get our attention that God's sovereign providence is woven through this entire chapter, yet there's no argument to defend it. There's no philosophical reason to explain it. It's simply there, holding the whole chapter together. Why? Why is it this way? Because the right response is worship. Worship. We should marvel here at the delightfully precise yet unexpected providence of God. This is how God works, friends. His deliverance comes exactly when His people need it, but it typically comes in ways we would never plan. Such is the God of the Bible. He's big enough to be sovereign over all things, including, including marauding Philistines, and yet He's near enough to work at the right time in the right way, precisely, so that His people are sustained. Big enough to be sovereign, near enough to give you what you need. In fact, those two realities go together. You, you really don't have one without the other. Why is God able to preserve His people because He is sovereign over all things, including Philistines. You see, you can't have God's constant care without the sovereign providence of God. If you want His constant care, then you must profess Him to be absolutely sovereign. If our first instinct in reading these verses is to bow up and debate God's sovereignty, like how dare He use Philistines, then we've actually missed the point. In every scene, God providentially works out His will, and every time it is for David's good. We may not fully grasp all the ins and outs of God's sovereign providence, but remember friends, the Lord is not required to meet our standards with His truth. He's God, we're not. The Lord reveals this about Himself in such striking fashion. He reveals this about Himself so that we'll trust Him. In that sense, the question of 1 Samuel 23 is not, do you agree, but will you walk by faith? David understood this. David understood this. He understood how the Lord's sovereignty was meant to encourage faith. We know this because David wrote a psalm in response to this unlikely deliverance. Psalm 54. And it captures the right response to the truths we've seen this morning from God's Word. So as we close, listen from David's own mouth to what sustained him in the wilderness. And may it sustain you in faith as well. This is what David says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Or we could say, my life is in God's hands. He's got the whole world in His hands, friends. And praise God, that includes you and me. Let's pray.